the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. My name is Aisha Sadika. I'm a co-founder of an environmental group that is fighting the fossil fuel industry called Polluters Out. And I also am a co-founder of, again, an environmental organization that is offering education to any and all people who want to tackle the fossil fuel industry. It is called fossilfreeuniversity.org. So I was quite nervous, actually, when you reached out to me, because the word radical or radicalized, a lot of movements and a lot of people have taken ownership of it, which is why we are here today. And a majority of the population gets to get away with taking ownership of it. But when a Muslim not only acknowledges it, but attempts to personalize it, attempts to approach it from a positive point of view, it's really, really difficult. Because there are so many things set up against you and just the words together, radical Muslim, are just just incite a bunch of associations in people's minds. So I was a little hesitant before saying yes, because I wanted to so clearly explicate that to me, the word radical is not the same as fanatic or it's not bad. To me, it's a form of breaking down all the boundaries and all the barricades that have been set up against my people and our people and have prevented us from living our fullest lives, that have prevented love from flourishing in our communities. And so I think my journey begins from a very young age because I got to grow up in Pakistan. I came to this country at the age of six and then went back for the reasons of 9-11, parents didn't feel it was safe here anymore and we were financially struggling. But I got to see the world from two different points of view because the community I grew up in, the village, it was not industrialized, it wasn't a city, it was a very communal-based. I would even say most of my family is native to Pakistan, so we've been living there for hundreds of years. And our lifestyle consists of cropping, sharecropping, and raising livestock. And over the years, as I, as I sit here today with you, as I've attained my education in the United States, I've been able to watch my home dissipate. I've bore witness to my family dying of illnesses that could have been prevented, which were directly related to the climate crisis. Today, I live in the community of Coney Island, which was one of the most affected areas during the year 2012 from Hurricane Sandy. And to this day, when I step outside, there is still construction. The city is still trying to fix the pipes, um, the water pipes, the gas pipes. Homes 
that were abandoned in 2012 have just become lots. And retailers have purchased it for stores and fast food restaurants. So there's a lot of stimulus the second I step outside because I see poverty. My community is majority black and majority brown. And then I see the damage from something that could have been prevented. And I'm here to tell everybody who's listening that if something like Hurricane Sandy were to happen tomorrow, the city has done absolutely nothing to protect the lives that are in risk again. And this has made me not only frustrated, I had a whole series of steps that I went through. I got angry, I got frustrated, and then I was hit with immense sadness because I entered college. I started learning about ecology. I started learning about the environment. One thing led to another. I'm reading the IPCC report, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the report predicts that we have less than 10 years to reach a point of no return. And by no return, we have less than 10 years to prevent our our globe from warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. What that means is hurricanes are likely to occur at rapid speeds because the water levels and the sea levels are rising. Drought is predicted to take over most parts of Africa and most parts of Asia, including the area my family is. We are expected to have between 500 to 100,000 refugees at the end of 2050. And these kind of occurrences of the environment aren't coincidental. It's not like there aren't people that you can directly point to. There is a very strategic and deliberate destruction happening. And when you kind of put all of that together, especially somebody who comes from an area of the world that has faced not only the war on terror, but the kind of residue of the war on terror, and by residue I mean people have been killed, then you start to see the bigger picture. My people, people who look like me, people from those areas weren't just victim to war for reasons to promote democracy or for the betterment of civilization. The lands were exploited for oil and minerals and resources. And today, Chevron, Exxon, the Bush administration cannot deny it because they've gone on record in front of hundreds of people and have said explicitly, of course it was for oil. So from Yemen to Pakistan, from Sudan to Afghanistan, from Iran to Syria, the climate crisis has been something that's been strategically done and the people have been exploited and people have been killed and people have been left to suffer. There are so many things that each administration, from the United States to the United Kingdom, talk about when they're trying to become elected, immigration, healthcare policies, the climate crisis, and from a larger macro perspective, every single one of them are intertwined. The refugees we are so eager to reject from our borders are a result of the United States and its army exploiting their lands causing the bedrock of the land to completely be deteriorated of all nutrients. 
drought to happen, people to starve, and when they come wash up on our borders, we reject them. We ban them from the country. Better yet, we even step out of agreements that would allow those people to come in. Every time I looked at the news, just from the ages of 14 to where I'm now, I'm just 21 years old, I constantly saw the suffering of my people. And I didn't even know what to do about it until I met students my age and I met youth who were doing all that they could to take on the climate crisis. And in this process, ensure a just and equitable planet for everybody. My relationship to this planet, to nature, to everything that I hold dear in my heart is a result of my upbringing in Pakistan that I mentioned. Our native cultures teach us that everything that you encounter is a sentient being, that the earth you walk upon knows when you step on it with anger or disdain, or when you step on it with gentleness, that when you cut down a tree, it feels it. And I know this might seem naive because it was beaten out of me in this in in the school system that I grew up in and in the ever increasing productivity of of America that I was brought up in, especially living in New York City where I have very little access to nature. But I had to teach myself to go back to it and to be grounded and realize what human essence essentially is. It is love and care for the things that provide for you. The other thing that I was taught and that I still practice is we as human beings are mere visitors. We are travelers. We are guests. And the climate crisis, which all major scientists are saying is coming at us such a fast speed, tells us is that humans might go extinct. But that doesn't mean that the planet will. In fact, it will flourish afterwards because we don't know when to stop and we don't know what it means to take things in little and stop exploiting. And all of this exploitation is also related very much to white supremacy. Industry is only a few hundred years old. Colonialism and imperialism, again, is only a hundred years old. Capitalism is only a few hundred years old. We as humanity, we as a species, lived upon the earth long before that, most of our history, without such massive exploitation. And the United States contributes to more than 40% of that exploitation. A lot of my fight in the circles of the climate sphere is not just about the fossil fuel industry. It's holding the governments like the U.S. and like the U.K. accountable for where they intend on dumping their plastic. When we talk about the Paris Climate Agreement, which is a topical point because Joe Biden signed it a few days ago, a lot of the articles of it are left out and much of the Paris Climate Agreement is based on offsetting. It's based on reducing our carbon footprint, but continuing the exploitation in other people's lands. And those people are, again, people of color and just temporarily putting the responsibility off of our shoulders. There is nothing in these UN bodies and these negotiations that is holding people accountable. 
that is enforcing that we cut back on our capitalistic endeavors. And it's just kind of a coin toss in the air and a big fat show. Every year, world governments come together at this conference called the Conference of the Parties. For the past 50 years, it's produced agreements like the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Climate Agreement, the Rio Protocol, etc. And year after year and after year, it's just a Coachella for all the world leaders to come take pictures, snap, and talk about how much they care about the environment and then pass on the responsibility to someone else. We have less than seven years to get our act together. We have less than seven years to end the exploitation that we continue to practice and potentially save humanity. At this moment, the governments in power, the people in power, are the last administrations that can do anything to prevent us from getting to that point. Youth are the last generation to prevent us from getting to that point. We are running out of time, and I can't believe that the science has been out there for more than 50 years. I can't believe that 7 million kids walked out of their schools, left their seats empty, and still the UN or the leaders of the government did not take any action. It's funny because everybody's like, we can't do anything about it. Everybody's passing it on to somebody else. Then if you, the president of the United States, can't do anything about this, then who can? Then do you even deserve that seat? And I find that very, very difficult to believe. For the reasons that during the Cold War, just for the heck of it, just to beat Russia, we got the top scientists from all over the world to our Manhattan Project and in a matter of five years build a nuclear bomb. You're telling me that in the 1930s and the 1940s that was possible, but in 2020 we can't decide how we're going to reduce our carbon emissions and actually let indigenous people have access to their lands and start functioning in a proper economic manner which prioritizes every species and every being. I find that mind-boggling. I mean, just right now, a very easy thing that we can do as a society, we have census, we know how many people are on Earth, we know how much water we have, and we know how much fertile land we have. We can very easily put in place a system that makes sure that we don't run out of water in the next 50 years. What we're heading towards is not just intense inflation, prices of food in the next 20 years are going to skyrocket. We will not be able to access apples, oranges, or bananas for less than 20 bucks. Water supplies are running out, fresh water supplies. We're going to have to decide which communities have access to that. Most of America is going to end up like Flint, Michigan. That's the scariest part for me. Everywhere you look, the people who are on sacrifice zones, i.e. cheap property, i.e. property that is probably the first to get hit by environmental disaster, 
is black and brown communities. And it's not just in the United States, it's all over the world. In Pakistan, for example, it's a class situation. The poorer you are, the less access to resources you have. The darker you are, the less access to resources you have. There will be people in power, and most likely it will be the white people, and it will be in their hands to choose who gets to live and who gets to die. And if we, as people of color, if we, as marginalized communities, don't stand up for ourselves now, a time will come where there won't even be enough of us to stand up for ourselves because they will let us die. I don't want people to think that there is nothing we can do. There are chapters in every single state that are fighting against environmental racism. There are indigenous leaders all over this country that are fighting with their lives to protect sacred lands and prevent fracking and prevent the last few untouched reservoirs that we have left from going under. And if anything that I've said has potentially activated something inside of you, I would urge you to join those leaders and I would urge you to join their fight, especially if you are white folk and you want to help. The best thing you can do is show up in solidarity and show up with your resources to the people who have been leading this fight for decades now.